This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, A Brief History with Christine Morgan. Hi, I'm Christine Morgan, and welcome to A Brief History. On this episode, we continue with Sir Walter Besant's account, London in the Time of the Tudors. We begin our journey through the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, starting with the events immediately following her half-sister, the Queen Mary's, death. After Queen Mary's reign, the common people had one thought, relief. The people celebrated this new monarch and her potential as a ruler. So let's get back into our story. My Lady Elizabeth, the Venetian ambassador writes in the lifetime of Queen Mary, She is the daughter of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, was born in 1533 in the month of September, so that she is at present 23 years of age. She is a lady of great elegance both of body and mind, although her face may be called rather pleasing than beautiful. She is tall and well-made, her complexion fine, though rather sallow. Her eyes, but above all her hands, which she takes care not to conceal, are of superior beauty. In her knowledge of the Greek and Italian languages, she surpasses the queen. She excels the queen in the knowledge of languages, for in addition to Latin, she has acquired no small acquaintance with Greek. She speaks Italian, which the queen does not. In this language, she takes such delight that in the presence of Italians it is her ambition not to converse in any other language. Her spirits and understanding are admirable, as she has proved by her conduct in the midst of suspicion and danger, when she concealed her religion and comported herself like a good Catholic. She is proud and dignified in her manners, For though her mother's condition is well known to her, she is also aware that this mother of hers was united to the king in wedlock with the sanction of the Holy Church and the concurrence of the primate of the realm. And though misled with regard to her religion, she is conscious of having acted with good faith. Nor can this latter circumstance reflect upon her birth, since she was born in the same faith as that professed by the queen. Her father's affection she shared at least in equal measure with her sister. It is said that she resembles her father far more than the queen does, and yet the king considered them equally in his will, settling on both of them ten thousand scudi per annum. Yet with this allowance she is always in debt, and she would be much more so if she did not studiously abstain from enlarging her establishment and so giving greater offense to the queen. For indeed there is not a knight or gentleman in the kingdom who has not sought her service, either for himself or for some other son or brother. Such is the affection and love that she commands. This is one reason why her expenses are increased. She always alleges her poverty as an excuse to those who wish to enter her service, and by this means she has cleverly contrived to excite compassion, and at the same time a greater affection, because there is no one to whom it does not appear strange that she, the daughter of a king, should be treated in so miserable a manner. She is allowed to live in one of her houses about twelve miles distant from London, 
but she's surrounded by a number of guards and spies who watch her narrowly and report every movement to the queen. Moreover, the queen, though she hates her most sincerely, yet treats her in public with every outward sign of affection and regard, and never converses with her but on pleasing and agreeable subjects. She has also contrived to ingratiate herself with the king of Spain, through whose influence the queen is prevented from bastardizing her, as she certainly has it in her power to do, by means of an act of parliament, which could exclude her from the throne. It is believed that but for this interference the king, the queen, would without more remorse chastise her in the severest manner, for whatever plot against the queen is discovered, my lady Elizabeth or some of her people may always be sure to be mentioned among the persons concerned in them. Attention has already been called to the rejoicings of the people on the death of Mary, and the uplifting of that long-continued cloud. The bells of the city were rung, bonfires were lit, loaded tables open for all comers were spread in the street, yea, even in that dark night of November. A week later the new queen rode from Hatfield to the Charter House, where she stayed for five days. On the 28th, she rode in state to the tower. Here she remained till the 5th of December, when she went by water to Somerset House. On the 17th of December, the body of Mary was laid in Westminster Abbey with the Roman Catholic service. On the 12th of January, the Queen returned to the tower, and thence on the following day she rode to Westminster. The reader has probably remarked, in the course of this history, that neither king nor queen, nor mayor nor people, ever played the slightest regard for weather or for season. A royal riding with pageants and red cloth and tapestry and a procession in boats was undertaken as readily in January when there is generally hard frost, in April when there is generally east wind, in July when there is generally the heat of summer, or in October, when there is generally fine weather with the repose of autumn. Season and weather, sunshine or frost, make no difference. In her desire to win the hearts of the people, Elizabeth probably paid no heed to the weather, and whether it was cold or not. This brief interruption is brought to you by, well, me. Do you love Tudor's Dynasty? Consider becoming a patron on Patreon. Patrons get access to all kinds of amazing things that the everyday listener does not. Find out more by going to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudor's Dynasty, and click Become a Patron for details. All right, back to the show. We have remarked a great change in the temper and attitude of the city towards the sovereign. When we hear from time to time murmurings about the city liberties— but there is nothing of importance. The reasons are several. The Tudor sovereigns carefully respected those liberties which, so to speak, made the most show. They abstained from interference with the city elections. They would not interfere with the city courts. As regards the point of real importance to themselves, the raising of money and men, their demands were generally arbitrary. Witness the calls of Mary for men and still more men, 
Another cause for cheerful loyalty was that when the religious discussions were at length appeased, it was incumbent on everybody to do his utmost for the Protestant cause, which became then the national cause. For these reasons, we find the city cheerfully giving Elizabeth what it reluctantly gave or refused to give to Henry III or Richard II. It was understood by those who welcomed the queen so joyously that her first care must be the restoration of reformed faith. Every craftsman who threw up his cap expected so much. Fortunately, the events of the last reign had turned the hearts of most people wholly away from the mass. Elizabeth was fully informed as to the opinion of the majority of her subjects. As for her own opinion, it is said that she favored the old church. Perhaps so. That is to say, she would rather, as a matter of choice, listen to the Roman Mass than to the English litany. It is certainly more beautiful. At the same time, one cannot but believe that she was sincere in making her choice and in keeping steadfast to it. Her kindness to the Catholic faith was shown in the relaxation of persecution. She would not, at first, persecute any for believing what she herself publicly professed not to believe. Her first step, however, clearly showed the direction of future law. She put forth a royal proclamation ordering the cessation of disputations and sermons, and ordered in their place the reading of the Epistle and Gospel for the Day, with the Ten Commandments in the vulgar tongue. She also appointed in the first year of her reign certain commissioners whose duty it was to visit every diocese for the establishment of religion according to the new Act of Parliament. Those for London were Sir Richard Sackville, a knight, Robert Horne, Doctor of Divinity, Dr. Hick, and Master Savage. The commissioners visited every parish, calling before them persons of every sort whom they instructed or admonished. They suppressed all the religious houses that Mary had established, the Abbey of Westminster, Sion House, House of Sheen, the Black Friars of Smithfield, and those of Greenwich. They further pulled down all the new rods and images and burned all the vestments, altar cloths, banners, mass books, and lofts. In fact, the people showed very plainly that their minds were all for the Protestant religion. An act of uniformity followed which forbade the use of any form of public prayer other than that of the prayer book of Edward VI. This book was replaced in the churches and service was conducted in accordance with it on Whit Sunday of 1559. What happened immediately after? A pulling out of Bibles from hiding places, a return to the old talk restrained for five years for fear of informers, an enjoyable plunge into the anti-scriptural aspects of Roman creed, and a rush for the ornaments, tombs, vestments, incense vessels, and the candles in all the city churches. In some cases, the wafers, vestments, and altar cloths, books, banners, and other ornaments of the churches were burned, things which had cost thousands when they were renewed under Queen Mary, 
All this happened, and an incredible amount of mischief was done before the destruction was stopped. There appears to have been little strength of feeling or spirit of martyrdom among the Roman Catholics in London. They submitted, and more than this, they made no attempt to maintain their religion. Their children, if not themselves, became wholly Anglican. Such Roman Catholic worship as survived lurked in holes and corners or was maintained secretly by a few nobles and gentlemen. Before long, however, the government had to deal with that advanced form of Protestantism which had been brought over from the continent. In 1565, an order was issued that all the clergy were to wear the surplice. A good number of them refused and left their churches with their congregations. This was the beginning of nonconformity. But Elizabeth made no attempt to enforce obedience or persecute those who dissented. On the 25th of May, 1570, the temper of the people was plainly indicated by their reception of a bull from the Pope, which was actually found nailed to the door of the Bishop of London's palace in Paul's churchyard. It was in Latin. Hollinshed gives both text and translation. Quote, Pious, Bishop, Servant of God's servants, etc. Queen Elizabeth, hath put away the sacrifice of the mass, prayers, fasting, choice or difference of meat and single life. She invaded the kingdom and by usurping monstrously the place of the supreme head of the church in all England and the chief authority and jurisdiction of the same, hath again brought the said realm into miserable destruction. She hath removed the noblemen of England from the king's council, she hath made her council of poor, dark, beggarly fellows, and hath placed them over the people. These counselors are not only poor and beggarly, but also heretics. Unto her all such as the worst people resort, and by her received into safe protection, etc. We make it known that Elizabeth aforesaid, and as many as stand on her side in the matters above named, have run into the danger of our curse. We make it also known that we have deprived her from that right she pretended to have in the kingdom aforesaid, and also from all and every authority, dignity, and privilege." We charge and forbid all and every noble or subject or people with the aforesaid that they be not so hardy as to obey her or her will or commandments or laws upon pain of the like curse upon them. We pronounce that all whosoever by any occasion hath taken unto her are forever discharged of such oath, and also from all fealty and service which was due to her by the reason of her government. End quote. The crime was brought home to one John Felton, who on the 4th of August, three months later, was arraigned at the Guildhall on the charges of affixing the said bull. Four days later he was drawn from Newgate to St. Paul's Churchyard, and there duly hanged, cut down alive, bowled, and quartered. On the same day, 
which shows that their office was not an easy one the sheriffs of london after seeing the end of felton had to accompany two young men who had been found guilty of coining to tyburn where they suffered the same horrible punishment in the meantime the catholic enemy never relaxed the attempt to effect the reconversion or failing that the subjugation of this country not by bulls alone did he work seminary priests were sent over to work secretly upon the people and so it was hoped gradually make them ready for conversion after the tender mercies of the last reign one would believe that the task was hopeless one is persuaded that even if the secret missionaries had been allowed to put an advertisement in the window openly proclaiming their object they could have done no harm but the queen's council whether wisely or not were extremely jealous of these priests they charged the city authorities to try every means of laying hands on them they were to arrest all persons who did not attend church and to banish all strangers who did not go to church they were to make every stranger subscribe the articles a proclamation was issued ordering english parents to remove their children from foreign colleges declaring that to harbor Jesuit priests was to harbor rebels, imposing a fine upon those who did not attend church, which involved a strict watch upon all the parishes to find out what persons kept away. The two chief conspirators moving about England were two priests named Campion and Parsons. Campion was presently arrested, and after undergoing torture was executed in the usual manner, Parsons got back to the continent where he continued his machinations. Catholic historians are eloquent on the sufferings of the Catholics during this reign. We must, however, acknowledge that the conspiracies and intrigues of such men as Campion and Parsons went far to explain the persecution to which they were liable. This brings us to the end of our first installment on the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. I hope that you'll come back next week when we start to dive into one of our more well-known adventures, which is the defeat of the Spanish Armada. I can't wait to hear what Besant has to say about the city and how they responded to their queen in her moment of triumph. While you are waiting for our next installment, don't forget to look around, check out some of the other podcasts hosted by my fabulous co-hosts here at Tudor's Dynasty. Until then, I'm Christine Morgan. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.